You know, we gather here every Sunday and we sing a lot of different songs. Classic hymns of our faith, new contemporary songs, and songs that maybe we learned maybe a couple years ago. But this song, the very first song all of us probably learned. You don't even need the words, but they'll be on the screen. So it'll bless my heart and probably yours if we sing Jesus Loves Me together. Sing out, guys. It's a beautiful song. as Daniela plays this, we're going to ask that she not play. We're going to sing that one more time. Just you guys. Nobody on mic. We just want to hear your voices coming back at us. Let's do it again, guys. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Beautiful singing, guys. Amen. So we think about the children who were up here before us. Sometimes we think, man, what kind of world are they going to grow up in, right? It's a broken world. Will it ever be made right? We see things, and it just seems like things continue to, to get worse but Revelation chapter 4, just as we were singing, is he worthy? One day, Jesus is going to take that scroll, and God's plan is going to hit warp speed. So we enter into a time of judgment here on earth, and the church is taken up into heaven. How do you know if you're on the right side? How do you know if you're going to be taken up in that moment when Jesus returns? Well, John's first letter, 1 John, he gives us help in that arena. He wants to give us assurance. He doesn't want us to live in doubt and wonder, will I go to heaven? Am I saved? Am I in the family of God? It's a, a great letter of encouragement to say, here's how you know if you're saved. Here's how you know. Here are the evidences that you've had a genuine experience with Christ. Today we hit this social test theme again love if you love your brother open up your bibles with me to first john chapter three 
Loving others doesn't earn salvation, but it is evidence of genuine salvation. Stand with me as we read 1 John 3, beginning with verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. You may be seated. And join with me in prayer. Father, we come before you asking for wisdom from your word this morning. We know that you inspired these words to be written down. You used the Apostle John to write the very words that you would have us to know, to understand, to apply to our lives. And so this morning we submit, we surrender, we, we confess this is your word. Speak to us. Help us to understand this passage. And Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers today. But that when we hear these words, we will be doers. We will obey and follow you and do what you have commanded us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have heard the name Josh McDowell. He grew up in a, a, an unchristian home. Uh, he was an atheist. He grew up in an abusive home and had a lot of anger that was built up in him, and he was determined that he was going to prove that there really isn't a God, and for sure that the Bible is not true, and how in the world could anyone ever believe that a real resurrection ever happened? Well, if you know Josh McDowell's story in the research and in the study and the wrestling, he came to faith. He couldn't deny the evidence he found in the existence of God and the truthfulness of the Word and the reality of the resurrection. And he surrendered his life to Christ and wrote what now has become one of the top 50 most influential Christian books. And it's titled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He and his son Sean recently wrote a revised edition of that book 
But let's think about it a little bit differently this morning. There's evidence for God and His love for us, but is there evidence of your love for God? Your own trial, there's a jury, there's a judge. Would there be evidence to convict you of your love for God? John writes to help his readers have assurance of salvation through three particular evidences. We see this happening in a circular fashion. We've, we keep coming back to these three truths, and we're going to hit them a couple of more times before we're finished with this study of 1 John. But he's helping them to think through the assurance of their salvation through the evidences of obedience, love, and truth. The moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. And so in today's text, he brings us back to love, the social test. It's not the last time, but it is an important time. And I want you to see with me first this morning the difference between love and hate in this life. Think with me as you look back into verse 11 of 1 John 3. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Think about the kind of hatred that was in Cain's heart for his brother that led to murder. I would suggest to you if there was no conscience, if there was no even Christian roots in our nation and any kind of upbringing and idea, even from creation itself, God has placed some kind of morals within us because we're made in his image, even though it's so distorted. But if these things weren't in place and everyone was just doing what they felt like, we would be in a horrible, horrible environment. That's why God... uh, destroyed the world in Noah's day. It was such a terrible time when people were doing what was right in their own eyes and they were mistreating each other, hating each other, murdering, stealing, lying. And it it was a terrible place. And through Scripture we find that there are times that people are living out the sinful nature that is within them. Think about what hate looks like, how it's manifested in anger and bitterness and impatience, negative thoughts, being critical, condemning, prejudice, jealousy, envy. All of these are ways that hate's just lived out. And John's saying that if you're a follower of Christ, that that shouldn't be a part of your life. If your life is marked in hate, then you need to come back and reevaluate your relationship with God because that doesn't equal out. Hate doesn't match with who God is, a God of love. Even those who we may disagree with in our world. Isn't Isn't it a tough day to live and not hate because we turn on the news and the first thing it does is it makes our blood pressure rise? And we think, how could they think that? How can they believe that? And all of a sudden, we're in a world that's being conformed and shaped to hatred because of someone's political party, because of someone's stance on a particular issue. And we don't have that luxury. We don't have that room in the Christian life. That's not what God's called us to do. We're to love people. We're to love the people that God's put here. So when we think about how hate works, one, it indicates 
the devil as your father. If hatred is a part of your life and you're living that out and as we talk about the anger and the bitterness and the impatience and the negativity and the critical spirit and all of that comes along with what hatred really is, then what the scriptures tell us is more that our father is not God. Our father is more of Satan because that's Satan's nature. That's the devil's nature. That's not God's nature. When we become followers of Christ, we take on a new nature. And being in the light now, we can't live in hatred. We have to live in love. It's what God's doing in our lives. When you look back in John chapter 8, hold your place in 1 John and Look back in John chapter 8. Jesus is talking about this whole idea of how there were people who were even religious, but yet God was not their father. Notice what he says in verse 44 of John 8. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy, the devil himself, is on a mission of hate. He was a murderer from the beginning. He wanted to see Adam and Eve experience death. He wanted to take them out. And so he tempted them and did his dark work there in the garden. And so even today, the enemy is still doing his mission of hate. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And ultimately, the killing and the murdering is a result of hate. We don't like someone. We don't, we, we don't like what they've done or how they've done it. Or we want something. It's selfishness. And we take it out on someone else. So it indicates the devil as your father if hatred is a part of your life. Even earlier in John chapter, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10, we saw it last week. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What's more, hate leads to further more damaging sin. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking, you've heard it said, you should not murder, which is true. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We shouldn't take someone's life. But the root issue of murder is hatred for someone. And so he said, if you, if you hate your brother, you, you've already committed sin in your heart. Sinfulness has already happened. And again, if all restraints were taken away, most likely, that would be the end result. But hate has consequences in relationships, in your own self, but even in relationships with other people. It has more damaging sin. The third thing about how hate works that I want you to think with me about this morning is it's, comfort it's comfortable in the dark if you're not in the light. Think about Cain. In verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He was of the evil one. It was comfortable for him to feel this way about his brother and then to take action upon him. He was in the dark. He was of the evil one. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It's an interesting understanding, isn't it? Why do people hate Christians? 
Why do we, let, let's back that up. Why do people hate Jesus? Because he's righteous. He's completely good. He's holy. He's perfect. And that kind of perfection, that kind of light is painful for those who are in the dark. And unless they repent, they would rather get rid of him. And for believers, if you don't accommodate the world and you don't agree with the world, and even today, if you don't celebrate with the world in their sin, that light is painful and oftentimes leads to persecution and uh, ridicule and other mistreatment. It's comfortable in the dark if you're not in the light. Cain, he gave an offering, but it was the wrong offering. It wasn't the blood sacrifice that his brother Abel gave from the flock. It wasn't even the best. He didn't bring, he just brought some of the fruit of his labor from the garden. It wasn't the first fruits like Abel's. So Abel was acting in a righteous way. Cain was acting in an unrighteous way. And Cain was pretty comfortable in the dark, even to take that next step of murdering. The fourth thing about how hate works is it's uncomfortable in the dark if you're in the light. Think about the person that you really don't like right now. You know, isn't that a temptation constantly in your life? Someone says something and all of a sudden you have some hard feelings. Someone does something. Someone, you, you think about someone you don't like. Maybe someone who's even hurt you in some kind of way. You see, God, God loves you too much to let you live there if you're in the light. And he turns that light on and says, that darkness can't stay there. That dislike, that hatred, that anger, that bitterness. And so even when we read in the New Testament in Ephesians 4, get rid of all anger, get rid of all bitterness, get rid of all wrath. And what does he say? In Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So we, we do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. Forgive. That golden rule, and remember we talked about this when we talked about loving our brother. We, we want to even grow a little deeper into that platinum rule, do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. And no one has hurt you to the degree to the degree that you've hurt Jesus in sin. So it's uncomfortable in the dark. We can't hate. God won't let us live there. You can't hate and be divided. God will bring discipline. You, you tend to build your case why it's okay for you to be angry and bitter and not love someone, but the Holy Spirit rips your case apart. And says, that's not good enough. It won't work. Your father loves. What, look how your father treated you when he adopted you into, your fa- into his family. When he forgave you and then sent his son t- to die for your sin. You're to treat others as Jesus has treated you. So now think with me about how love works. Because in this same text, you see in verse 11, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's what God intended from the beginning, perfect relationships. It it was to be a a life that was lived in the light of God, in the glory of God, for the glory of God, and people were to get along well and to love each other. It's what he meant from the beginning. Even if we took this from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what he required of his followers, his disciples, when he taught them how to live their lives. They were to love one another. 
We're made in the image of God, and when we're restored back into a right relationship with God, then we begin to grow as God intended when he first put us here on earth to love one another. Love also shows you've passed out of death into life. Did you pick that up in verse 14? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There, when we're born first, we're born sinners. I know these babies looked beautiful and innocent and all the warm fuzzies that we have when we see babies. But in their, in their bad moments, they show that there's sin there. Right? I mean, they, they try to run the house even when they're babies. Parents have to learn how to exert authority and influence in those early years. Uh, and it's, it's not always easy. You, you see, we're born sinners. We never have to teach someone how to sin or how to do something wrong or how to be selfish. It just comes natural. Parents are charged to train up their children in the way they should go. We're to begin to disciple them and to teach them about not only their, the way they should live in a right moral fashion, but when they realize that they're not perfect and that they are sinners, that Jesus came to offer forgiveness of sins and to redeem them and to help them with their sin. But when we love, we show we've passed out of death into life. We've, we've been born the second time. We have confessed Jesus as Lord. We have placed our faith in his death and in, in his death and his resurrection. And we've been born again. When you love, you show the new birth has happened in your life. Again, we don't love to get into heaven, but we love because we're headed to heaven. We don't love to be saved, but we love because we are saved. And John is trying to say, here's an evidence. You want to know if you're saved or not? How do you love the people that God's put around you? And then the third thing that we can say about how love works is it's exemplified by Jesus' love for you. We see that as we move into the next section in verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. It's exemplified by Jesus' love for you. Jesus died for you. And when you place your faith in his death and resurrection, he's pulling for you. He's helping you. He's interceding for you. He is with you. He'll always be with you. And he has sealed you with his spirit until the day of redemption. That's the kind of love we have for each other, that we're pulling for each other. We're lifting each other up. We're willing to sacrifice for one another. We look at Jesus' sacrifice. And, and again, when I see these parents up here this morning, I, I have no question that each set of these parents would, would lay down their lives for their kids. I mean, they'd give up anything. They, they, would, they would give that last bite of food, they would jump in front of the shooter. I mean, they would wrestle that intruder, whatever it took. They would protect their children, these babies. They would give up their lives. Isn't that a wonderful picture of how we as a family should treat each other? That we would want to take care of each other, bless each other, encourage each other, help each other, rather than put each other down or one-up each other or combat or hold 
bitterness or anger. This is how families should act when we've come into the family of God and we have become followers of Christ. We should act like Christ. And that's what love is. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So that's, that's asking for a lot, Rodney. It is. Jesus never said it was going to be easy to be his follower. And there are some people in this place that are hard to love. And I'm one of them. We all are hard to love because we all have our things, our weaknesses, our idiosyncrasies. We all do. And in my household, when my, as my kids were growing up, we all had our weaknesses and our problems. And on any given day, none of us were easy to love. And in our church family, it's going to be the same way. And God's commanded us, you've got to love each other. You've got to push through that. You've got to depend on the Spirit. You've got to follow the example of Jesus. Well, let's take it a step further. Second point, the difference between loving in word or talk and in deed and truth. Let's make this comparison. When you look in verse 16, we see more of an open heart where Jesus laid down his life for the brothers. He didn't close his heart and say, you know what, they messed up. They're sinners. I'm just going to give them what they deserve. Rather, he provided a, a path of forgiveness through his death and his resurrection. He laid down his life. He had an open heart to people who didn't deserve it. He gave grace. He gave compassion and he took action. He left the glory of heaven. He came and he lived here on earth. He suffered persecution. He lived a sinless life. He went through the death on the cross. He had an open heart. He had compassion. He obeyed his father and wanted to bring glory to his father, but he also loved people and wanted to restore them into a right relationship with himself. That's much different than the closed heart. Look in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's like it doesn't make sense. Here's Jesus with this open heart, willing to give up all the glory of heaven, to give up all his very life. And here we are. We see our brother in need, and we're not willing to, to give a little room for that brother or that sister. We're, we're closed. We, we, rather than want to be compassionate and gracious, we want to be condemning and judgmental over them. And it's been said before that some of the worst damage for people who fail is not from the world, but from the church itself. Rather than seeking to restore and to forgive and to have healing. That's, that's a closed heart. Now, I'm not talking about enabling people. I'm not talking about giving people things that just enable them to continue to live whatever wrong life that they're living. But I am talking about getting involved in people's lives, having the courage to, to get messy in relationships and to help and the energy and the resources. You see, a closed heart makes excuses, blames the other people. Well, somebody else will do it. Well, they, they're just getting what they deserve. That's, that's the closed heart of making excuses. Next month, we're going to have 30 people from another church who's going to join us because they came to a place in their church's life where they were 
dying. Thank God for a church family that had an open heart, Lawndale, who has said, we want to welcome them in, let them be a part of our family where they can grow healthy again, and then recommission them as a church body. I tried to think through our core values again with this idea of love. Isn't biblical worship a part of loving each other well? I mean, our worship is directed to God. But, but think about when it's a biblical worship and, and we're willing to come in and open up the scriptures together as a family and we're willing to even sing songs as long as they're theologically rich that may not always every song be my favorite style, but instead of that consumerism, selfishness, give me what I want to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to love my brother, I'm going to love my sister, I'm going to love, if, if someone loves an old hymn, I'm going to love them, and I'm going to sing it to the top of my lungs to bless them and to bless God. Somebody loves a more modern hymn, I'm going, to, I'm going to sing it to the top of my lungs so that I can bless my brother and my sister. Biblical worship. Think about intergenerational ministry as we come together and try to bless each other, the older and the younger, and the younger to the older. I know with COVID, we've tried to promote more social distancing and it's been a little bit more difficult because I want to encourage you I want to say some of you younger people I want you to find an older senior saint in this congregation on your way out and I want you to introduce yourself and I, and I want one of you senior adults to find one of the younger couples or students or college students in our church family and introduce yourself because I, that's the kind of ministry that God intends with his church rather than separating and isolating how do we grow together as a church family intergenerational ministry even a discipleship culture do we love each other enough to encourage each other to walk with God and help each other to get into the word and to be witnesses and to do this, this great, joyful walk with God. Family equipping. Do we love families enough to help them with the job that they've, they've been given? And even leadership development, training up others and sending them out to do the work of God because it's not just about us, but it's about the kingdom of God. I mean, does that not just speak of love when we walk through those different core values that we have? That speaks to an open heart, not a closed heart. When we talk about the heart, what are we talking about? The, the heart is who we are. It's used interchangeably, I think, with the word soul. We... we uh, are what I would consider dichotomous, where body and soul, two primary uh, entities that is one, uh, body and soul. And so the soul feels, it thinks, it makes decisions. And, and so when we think about the heart, we're thinking about the soul, we're thinking about the mind, we're, we're thinking about really who we are. And the heart can be easily deceived unless we're looking in the mirror of God's word, unless we're in fellowship with other believers around us in a church family, the heart can be deceived. And so we say, don't follow your heart. We say, lead your heart. Someone says, just do what, what, what feels right to you. Just do whatever your heart's telling you. What, what, what is your gut telling you in this? And I'm saying, don't listen to that terrible advice. What does God's word say? Get godly counsel. 
don't follow your heart. Lead your heart with the Word of God and with godly people around you, godly counsel. And so when he says this to us, down in verse 19, by this we know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I love that thought of reassure a heart. How do you reassure your heart? I, I sometimes call this preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching the word. That's why we memorize scripture. That's why we are in the scriptures. We're preaching truth to ourselves. Reassure your heart. You can live in guilt when you've messed up. You can even live in doubt. But what he's saying is reassure your heart. Because there are times your heart's going to condemn you. Sometimes rightfully so. You've sinned. You need to repent and get it right with God. But there are times that maybe there, there's no sin that's obvious in our lives that our hearts are condemning us maybe from things in the past, way back, that we still feel guilty over. And I love the fact that he says, but God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than the condemnation. Speak truth. Reassure your heart. Back in chapter 1, we, we get that idea. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to live in the guilt of sin. But we also think about Romans 8 and verse 1. Now there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. When your heart condemns you, when you feel that weight, that guilt, open your heart to God and if there's any sin there, confess it, repent. If there's nothing you know of, reassure your heart. I'm in the family of God. I'm walking with God. There are times that you have to make sure you're telling yourself the truth because the devil in the world may be telling you the very opposite. Reassure your heart with the truth of God. Beloved, verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Think about that. When you're right with God, you get to enjoy Him. You get to have an unhindered relationship with Him. You get to walk with Him. You get to talk with Him. You get to pray. And you, you're, the avenue's open. You're living with God in the presence of God in the joy that God wants to give His children to walk with Him. And He brings us back. It's the, really the third point. The difference between assurance of salvation and doubting salvation. That's where we are. We believe in his name. That's, do you come back, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? That he's God? That he took on human flesh? That he lived a sinless life? That he died a substitutionary death? That he arose in a supernatural resurrection and he's coming back again? Do you, have you placed your faith in him? Do you believe in the name of Jesus, do you love one another? See, if you believe in his name and love one another, verse 23, we see that second social test. And then thirdly, you keep his commandments. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments, verse 24, abides in God and God in him. There is a false security and in part, that's why a book like this is written and given. The false security. Some people think because they prayed a prayer 
that they're in the family of God and there was no change in their lives. They're not living in the light. They're not obeying His commands. They're not loving their brother. They're not believing the truth about Jesus. It it, it doesn't match up. That's a false security. Some people, when you ask about a relationship with God, all they talk about is their baptism. There's, There's no believing in his name there's no loving one another there's no keeping his commandments that's a false security even church membership these are false securities these are good things membership baptism praying they're good things but they're not saving things the true security is more about the present than the past Are you showing evidence of a genuine experience with Jesus Christ? And the present tells us that. What's the fruit? What's the evidence? Is there enough evidence that you would be guilty of loving God? One of Jesus' followers was Thomas. Honorable man, at one point in the Gospels, we hear Thomas say to the other disciples who are wondering, well, if we go with him, we're all going to die. And Thomas says, well, let's, let's go and die with him. And he's a pretty sold-out guy, but after Jesus rose from the dead, he had some doubts, and therefore we've given him that title, haven't we? Doubting Thomas. Jesus in John 20, verse 27, I thought about this Because some of you have been wrestling with your salvation for years. And every time you hear somebody say, if you'll pray this prayer, you'll be saved. You pray that prayer, you've prayed it a hundred times. And and you still are in doubt. And part of that's because you've not placed your faith in true security in in a relationship with Christ. Part of that is that that very well maybe that you're saved, but you're just not growing in your faith. You're not showing evidence of it. Jesus told Thomas, stop doubting and believe. In the ESV, he said, do not disbelieve, but believe. And I like how the NIV said that. It's what came to my mind as I thought about this message this morning. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. If, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're following him, and the fruit of that's not, not perfection, but you're headed in the right direction, Stop doubting and believe. You're you're in the family of God. Keep growing. Keep serving. And the more you grow, the more assurance is there. Assurance shouldn't be there automatically. Assurance should be something we grow into because the evidence and the fruit of it is so real. This person treated you how and you loved them? You were in this situation and you still did what God wanted you to do? The world has been trying to tell you to believe this about Jesus, but you still believe this about Jesus. You see, it's those tests, those moments that we're living it out, the reality of it, that brings assurance to us of genuine salvation. For Thomas, evidence demanded a verdict. And what did he say? My Lord and my God. What is our hope in life and death? It's not what you do. It's not who you are. 
It's in who Christ is. Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. You see, it's Christ alone, Christ alone. This morning, maybe there's something in your life that's a sin that you've not confessed. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you've held anger and bitterness, hatred toward. Why not come and turn loose of that sin and let God do that fresh good work in your life that only He can do of restoring and forgiving and cleansing and putting your feet on the right path again. You may say, Rodney, you know, I think I've been relying on a prayer. I think I've been relying on a baptism. I've been relying on my church membership. I have never really placed my faith in Christ. Why not today? Why not today place your faith in Jesus, surrender your life, confess Him as Lord. He wants you in His family. He wants you. He wants you. The altar will be open, and there will be those of us after the service that will be available if you'd like to talk further. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you because we know that you're our only hope. Left to ourselves, we'd be miserable, sinners, lost, undone, headed for hell, living in darkness. But you have offered us the free gift of eternal life in Christ that would save us, bring us from death to life, that would bring us out of the darkness into light, that would save us so that we have heaven to look forward to. God, would you work in our midst right now? Convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.